Welcome to Every Unplugged, the podcast of the Electric Power Research Institute. I'm Amy Mills. I want to start off today by saying thank you to all of our listeners who joined us in Long Beach, California for Electrification 2018. You may have heard us talk about that on this podcast. We had a great event with over 1,800 people. So if you were there, if you missed it, either way, mark your calendars. April 6th through the 9th of 2020 will be the next event here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So with that, we're going to get into today's topic, which is renewable O&M. In 2017, 18% of all electricity produced in the United States came from renewable resources, up from 15% in 2016. As the number of wind and solar farms continue to increase, asset owners are innovating for efficiency, cost, and reliability. That innovation includes the area of operations and maintenance, as renewable owners figure out issues such as how to best apply insights from large amounts of data, opportunities for efficiency monitoring and improvement, and when or if it makes sense to use a third party for O&M services. I have here in the studio with me Brandon Fitchett and Michael Bolin, who lead EPRI research for wind and solar, respectively. Brandon, Michael, welcome. Thanks, Thanks. Amy. We were able to time this podcast pretty well as you just hosted a workshop on this topic that included more than 50 wind and solar subject matter experts. And we'll talk about some of the insights coming out of that meeting. But first, let's touch on why this topic is increasingly important. What's involved in maintaining large-scale wind and solar assets? All right. So for the solar assets, really there's two buckets of maintenance uh, that happens. There's a time-based preventative maintenance uh, and a corrective uh, maintenance regime. And so for time-based preventative maintenance, this could include things like site inspections, whether that be a field tech, uh, walking through a site, flyovers from uh, unmanned aerial systems or even fixed-wing aircraft, cleaning filters, checking uh, torque marks. You know, these are things that you just do on a regular interval, most often to maintain warranties, whether that be at uh, an EPC or through uh, an OEM. And then there's also the corrective maintenance, whereby if something breaks in the field, you'd go out and fix it. So this could be, you know, your inverter is going down, uh, module washing, replacing fuses. Uh, so these are just some of the uh, kind of basic examples of, of what you would do at a, a large-scale uh, PV plant. And just to make sure we don't get lost in the jargon, EPC and OEM. Yeah, so engineering, <laughs> procurement, construction uh, is EPC, and then OEM, the original equipment manufacturer. Both important terms to know in this discussion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brandon, do you want to take that from your side as well? Sure, yeah. There's very similar approach in wind energy in terms of planned maintenance versus unplanned maintenance or corrective. In the wind industry, more than half of all the downtime and lost production is attributed to unplanned or corrective maintenance. And this is, you know, things that break down in the field, you don't have a part, something as simple as inventory, proper inventory. This is an area where we're investigating a lot in terms of how to use that data that you mentioned that everybody is collecting and and determining things like the most common failure modes and failure signatures to be more proactive about this unplanned maintenance. We have a lot of goals here to reduce that unplanned corrective amount of downtime and therefore increase production and utilize less uh, labor in the process. The planned maintenance aspects are more about maintaining the equipment that is there and make sure that it's running in in uh, top tip-top shape so industry is working towards optimizing the planned maintenance aspects 
from a time-based regimen towards a condition-based regimen based on data or measurements made in the field like oil samples. So imagine in your car, instead of changing the oil every six months or one year, you change it based upon some measurement of that oil quality. And that is one of the examples uh, of the industry moving towards a condition-based maintenance direction. And you say the industry is moving. That's a transition that you're seeing happen now. This is definitely a transition that's happening now and and one that multiple owner-operators are doing in different ways. So something that we here are collaborating on this topic as we speak towards building condition-based maintenance, towards optimizing condition-based maintenance. And when you mention collaboration, obviously this is a hot topic because you had a really good attendance at your workshop. What are you hearing from folks in the field about some of the challenges that they're facing? They are facing things um, when, for example, if they don't know what type of failure modes might be common in the industry as a whole based on their one particular wind farm. They may have a, a view of challenges at their one wind farm, and they honestly sometimes aren't sure if everybody in the industry with that make and model of wind turbine is having the same type of challenges. So we're building uh, building a collaborative effort upon things like failure modes and failure signatures of major components. And are you seeing, I don't know if database is the right word, but if, as that collaboration happens, sort of a, a resource of people documenting some of these issues that they're experiencing? Yes. And right now, it's uh, there are a lot of users groups that talk about things like this. And we do some of the same, but also are working towards documenting those into more formal databases. That sounds like a valuable tool to have. So why in in your areas is innovation going to be so important? Michael, you want to sure. take that one? So with both wind and solar, like all other generation assets, the O&M budgets are always under pressure. And so folks are always trying to reduce you know, the the levelized cost of electricity uh, for generating those. And with O&M, you know, that budget is often, you know, the one that's scrutinized very closely and, and you know, squeezed as much as possible. And so doing more with less is a common refrain across all generation assets. So that's, you know, true for wind and solar. And so with innovation, what we're able to do is, you know, achieve this goal of, you know, doing more with less, whereby we can use new technologies, new ways of looking at data, uh, like what Brandon was discussing, ways to find uh, failures or faults in the field and maybe address them before uh, they become uh, a larger issue. And so these all take new types of technologies, new types of learnings, and EPRI is a great place to you know, be able to try out some of these new types of innovations and help drive down that cost of electricity or uptime. Uh, of those plans. So give me an example. What's a a new solar technology that EPRI is working on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a handful of exciting uh, techniques that are out there. So right now we're in the midst of uh, trying to suss out the hype around machine learning. So there's a lot of talk that's uh, going on around that. And so what we're doing is we're taking those uh, types of machine learning algorithms that are out there and applying them to performance data to be able to detect faults and failures in the field that uh, most common techniques that have been used within remote operations centers uh, just have not been able to detect. Some basic technologies that were used previously, like advanced pattern recognition, uh, isn't sufficient for 
detecting subtle faults and failures in the field. And so we're going to the next level to look at, you know, what's happening within the field in terms of uh, those somewhat undetectable uh, issues by current technology standards. So that way, you know, when folks are trying to maximize the performance of their site, uh, they're able to, to do so in a very quick and efficient uh, manner with these uh, new algorithms that we're putting forth. And Brandon, do you have a similar example for wind? Yes, and Michael just mentioned the importance of the performance of the plants, and that's one thing in wind where the industry is shifting as the fleet grows from larger OEM-supplied long-term service agreements. So, you know, a a long-term warranty with the manufacturer that covers all parts and labor for a long period of time, typically judged by uptime and and downtime or availability, the fraction of of, uh, the ratio between uptime and downtime. And in these agreements, there is typically not a production-based warranty therein. So this is one area where industry is innovating in a contractual sense to better understand and better apply actual site production to the performance not only of energy production, but the performance of the operations and maintenance of the plant itself. So this was one very you know intense topic, I'd say, at our operations and maintenance workshop and over the last year or two in industry where industry is shifting away from a time-based availability that only focuses on time and uptime and downtime and moving more towards production-based guarantees. Uh, it is difficult um, though. So that's that's where we're currently offering and working towards algorithms and techniques to be able to give the owner the tools that they need in order to to determine the efficiency and production of their plants and how well the plant is running during that 90 to 95 percent of the time that it is running. And so you said that was an intense discussion. Were there other topics that came up that really surprised you guys that you, you didn't think would be a, as much of a discussion point as they were? Everything from that, from from production-based incentives and contracts, all the way down to details like the type and viscosity of oil that goes into gearboxes and when should <laughs> you be doing these condition-based oil changes. So we got into a lot of details there that did surprise me and the the knowledge of you know our our member subject matter experts as well as the the power of that collaborative model to have these folks in the same room as well as adding industry top notch expertise from our side to the discussion really created a powerful environment for innovation and knowledge and Michael, did you see that in the solar discussions as well? yeah, I'll add one point that surprised me in the discussion in that. You know, so we're trying to figure out a better link between the upfront capital cost, the dollar per watt, versus the long-term return on that investment, so a dollar per watt hour. And a lot of folks are shooting for uh, the lowest capital cost possible because that is a large driver of that cost of electricity. However, there's only so far that you could go in pushing those those costs down because some of the things that were surprising within the workshop were yeah, everybody is focused on a power plant as generating electricity. So there's a lot of emphasis on the electrical components, but civil design was one of the interesting uh, topics that kept coming up. So yeah, not doing 
appropriate uh, geotech analysis, looking at the soil, uh, what was there before, the grading, erosion-type issues. Uh, we were seeing in some plants that they were continuously flooding, even under minor amounts of rain, because they weren't considering kind of the uh, kind of drainage of that water, as well as, you know, they're retaining ponds that were forming within their fields. And so, you know, it's no longer just a focus purely on the electrons from the PV module side or the inverter side, but, you know, all the, the things that go around with it, right, all the land and, you know, how you would appropriately take care of that to make sure that you have a solid foundation upon which you can then generate those electrons. So you mentioned that there have been shifts within the industry in different ways, and one of those has been going from you know, third-party vendors for O&M to those services moving more in-house. What has been kind of the motivation for that? You know, why are our some utilities going in that direction? Right. We had a great panel discussion uh, on that topic at our workshop, and some of the benefits uh, that folks were mentioning about why they chose to in-house the operations and maintenance was around their own internal staff knowledge. And so in terms of you know, gaining what it means to do operations and maintenance, to capture those lessons learned and apply them to future plants. Uh, so if you're going to build a new plant, well, you better design it for maintainability. And so then you can, again, help drive that cost of operations and maintenance down. Uh, another benefit was around increased transparency of O&M activities. So when you, you know, outsource to a third party, you don't always know what's going on. You may get a report out, but there may be some other activities that were happening on site that you may not be as well aware of. Uh, and also to that point uh, was around safety. So there was uh, a few utilities that voiced issues where uh, some of the field workers from uh, a third party provider were coming to the site in unsafe, uh, you know, work gear, right? Just not uh, living up to the, uh, the organization's safety culture. And so they had to ask some of those field techs to leave wow. because of that. So, you know, it's that extra control uh, that also uh, meshes onto uh, electric utility safety culture that was uh, important. Yeah, I think those are some of the, uh, the benefits and, and reasons why, in addition to, you know, uh, you know, as you get to a larger fleet, uh, if it is geographically centralized, then it can make you know dollars and cents difference as well. So moving forward, what do you think is going to be the most important research for solar O and M? So what we're seeing is you know globally, ninety percent of PV plants have been built in the past six years, and so we're at a very early stage of trying to understand what it means to operate and maintain these plants. So what we're beginning to do is you know, learn lessons from those plants that have been in operation and putting forth some continuous improvement processes, developing best practices. Uh, and that means best practices across the entire plant life cycle, all the way from design of a plant uh, to commissioning it, operating it, maintaining it, and all the way through to end-of-life uh, considerations. So another important point uh, within solar O&M uh, is keeping those plants up and operational in the face of constantly changing uh, technology. So the solar industry has new widgets that are coming out uh, you know, every six months. And so the question is, do you adopt those widgets now and you know, perhaps abandon the technology that you had in place? I mean, you still have existing plants that are up and 
and running that you need to maintain. And yet those bits of equipment may not be there when you need them for inventory reserves or strategies uh, around how to replace things that break in the field. And so that's uh, a difficulty that's facing the, the solar industry now. And then also there's just a changing uh, market participation. There are some companies that come into uh, the, the solar landscape, make a big splash, and then uh, for whatever the reason, decide to exit that landscape, uh, meaning that there's some stranded uh, assets in place where you know that uh, OEM is no longer there to support that piece of equipment that you may have bought. So that's uh, a, a struggle for, for many folks. Uh, some of the other interesting uh, O&M innovations that we're seeing is understanding uh, if and how discrete faults and failures may cascade on plant uh, performance. And so we've seen a lot of research where it's individual uh, components, things like PV modules that are assessed uh, quite deeply when it comes to things like degradation over the course of time. But when you put those together into a plant, now the system operates quite differently than any of those individual discrete components. And we're starting to see interesting degradation modes uh, whereby all those discrete things start to play together in ways that we hadn't foreseen before. And so now uh, things like replacing a single PV module that didn't necessarily uh, pencil out uh, from just a, a return on investment might start to make more sense if it then affects all the other PV modules that it's connected to uh, you know, within the string, within the uh, plant itself. And so these are new insights that we're gaining from those uh, operations of, of these plants. Wow. Every six months. That's amazing to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brandon, I will ask you the same question. What do you think is going to be most important for wind O&M? For wind O&M, I'd, I'd start out with saying how the industry outlook is changing and it's really changing in this country in the US with the production tax credit and the phase out of the production tax credit the PTC as it's called has led to a 10 year point of view from a lot of investors into the wind industry 10 year production goal has led to a lot of 10 year goals basically being being set and the industry is shifting away from that towards more long term goals more long-term outlooks and a more holistic approach to 20, 30, maybe 30-year-plus 30 wind farm age targets, uh, wind farm life targets. This has led to more holistic strategies around monitoring and proactive or even predictive maintenance for all major components, which would feed back to a more longer-term strategy on cost-effective increased reliability for the long-term. So working these lessons learned in the field, working these monitoring strategies into, into the upfront design and even upgrade or replacement strategies for the components or the entire wind turbines that are out there. So I think this whole cycle is probably one of the most, one of the most important right now for innovations in operations and maintenance of wind. And it's feeding all of the lessons learned and all of the advanced work going on right now for monitoring and operations and maintenance feeding that back into cost-effective increased reliability in, in upfront designs. Okay, and I want to touch a little bit more on upfront designs. And One of the things Michael mentioned was end of life, and that's become more of a discussion. 
when these solar farms and wind farms reach the end and are recycled, what happens? But what needs to go into some of the upfront design to account for that? Fortunately, there is experience over 100 years of how to deal with concrete in the ground, for example, and that's what is at the base of the wind turbines. But what's at the top of the wind turbines are wind turbine blades, and those are made of fiberglass and sometimes uh, some foam or balsa wood type materials. And fortunately, after those are manufactured, they are fairly, fairly inert. But right now, the vast majority of spent wind turbine blades, of which there aren't a whole lot, relatively speaking, are cut into small pieces and put into landfills. There are emerging technologies to be able to harness the energy that is in the materials, either epoxy resins or uh, polyester resins in the wind turbine blades. There are some technologies out there. They're still costly, but we're looking actively for new technologies to be able to deal with the what will be millions of tons of wind turbine blades um, that will be nearing the end of their lives or in the next decades. The industry as a whole and blade manufacturers that we're in contact with and OEMs as well are starting to work towards design for recyclability upfront. So there are materials out there, but OEMs will have to work those into their design strategies and then manufacturing in order to design a wind turbine blade for the next generation of wind turbines that can be just melted down in a, in a thermal way and the plastics extracted from the wind turbine blades and potentially reused or used in some, some other material so that landfilling will be a thing of the past. And I would assume there's similar discussion on the solar side. Right. And even so, there's even more considerations to be had because with PV modules, depending on the particular manufacturer that you choose, and there may be varying levels of things like lead that are used for the solder uh, of those modules. And so there's testing that's uh, ongoing whereby you would have to grind up parts of a module to then test how much of that lead or other heavier toxics, uh, heavy metals or toxics could come out of that sample. And if it's above a certain threshold, then you have to go to a very special landfill, right? A lined landfill that doesn't leach into the groundwater. If not, you know, you could uh, landfill that module, but we would prefer it to be recycled. However, there's not that many recyclers, at least in the U.S. And so this is kind of a chicken and the egg situation whereby a lot of PV modules are going into the, the ground and most of those PV modules will come out at about the same point in time. And so if the recyclers or that kind of end-of-life structure isn't there to handle this, then we're going to be stuck with uh, many modules that may be going into a landfill, for instance. And we clearly don't want that as an um, you know, industry that prides itself on being clean and green. Uh, so that's one issue. But even uh, you know, leading up to that point where many of these plants would you know, achieve their end of life, there's events that happen along the way. Uh, hailstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, careless uh, uh, lawn mowing, even goats are destructive <laughs> uh, to PV modules. And you know, you'd have to pull these uh, modules out you know, if they are broken and pose safety hazards. But then the question is, well, how do you deal with that from a performance standpoint within the plant? Do you reconfigure that plant? Do you choose to repower it? What are the issues around trying to claim any sort of uh, insurance or OEM warranty? Uh, and how do you prove damage? There's you know, many research topics that are important to try and understand what are your end-of-life 
decisions that are available to you at that point in time and how do you make those? And EPRI's uh, in the thick of that research trying to uh, understand how you'd go through and, and help with that kind of decision-making process. And I laugh at the goats, but that is a real thing, right? They put goats on solar farms for... Is so, it considered part of O&M? I don't know. There is. So vegetation management is there a large go. issue, yes, within uh, PV plants. And you don't want to use goats. Goats are destructive. They actually eat a lot of the wires and will jump on modules. So instead, you have to use sheep, right, if you choose to go the animal menagerie. However, if you want to then uh, protect the sheep or move them around the plant, then you also need to bring in a donkey. And I could, this is from, from the word <laughs> Which of a, also sounds destructive. <laughs> uh, from, from the word of a shepherd, I've spoken to more shepherds than I care to admit at this point. Research you never knew every did. That's right. <laughs> okay, well, very interesting. As far as the the upfront design, were there other aspects that are being considered? I got sidetracked with the goats, but <laughs> <laughs> so the, there's other considerations, even in the. Uh, the upfront design, and in fact, we've written a, a report on this uh, around optimizing PV plant uh, design and development, uh, whereby you'd want to you know, make some considerations even for uh, end-of-life issues when it comes to, again, like Brandon mentioned, uh, the uh, how you would dispose of, you know, in this case, the, the PV modules. There are some folks that are designing for uh, recycling or having low environmental impacts. Uh, there are some options out there for ease of kind of retrofitability as you start to consider ways in which you may want to reconfigure or repower a PV plant uh, at any point in its uh, lifetime. And then even for upfront design, some jurisdictions will require uh, decommissioning bonds. And then the question is, well, how much does it cost to you know, pull out uh, this equipment from the ground or return it to whatever state that's usually contractually obligated. And, you know, there's a, a lot of questions around, you know, how does that uh, salvage value that you may get from things like steel or aluminum frames from PV modules offset some of the labor that it costs for pulling these out of the ground. And we also issued a, a public white paper on that just a, a few months ago about the net salvage value of a PV plant uh, to show that you know, as the, the current assumptions are uh, in the paper, that it does cost to decommission a site, whereas you don't receive a positive net salvage value from all of the, uh, the scrap metals uh, and, and other recyclable material that you would get from, uh, from the plant. Interesting. So you mentioned that white paper. You guys actually have a lot of material out there. To learn more about this topic, where would you send people? All right. So we publish many public white papers uh, on the topic of renewables. Uh, in the case of uh, solar, I'd recommend we you can just go to epri.com and we have papers that cover a wide range of topics, anything from DC arc flash hazards uh, to had already uh, plugged uh, some PV plant net decommissioning value uh, and optimizing PV plant design. We've researched budgeting uh, for PV plants, uh, operations and maintenance. And that's just a, a small tip of the iceberg. All right. And Brandon, what about wind? Where would you send people? Also on EPRI.com, we've released wind operations and maintenance best practices, power performance monitoring techniques, Disposal of wind turbine blade options, assessing landfill capacities versus potential waste 
volumes. These are just some of the more recent publications that may be pertinent to wind operations and maintenance. I think that is the majority of the focus of the program that we're working right now in in the wind generation, in the wind power generation program is operations and maintenance. And I think that's covers about 50% of what we do in the program. The other 50% varies across, you know, end of life, upfront, upfront design and site development type strategies. Well, I didn't even realize it was 50%. You guys are really doing a great depth of research on this. I think that's the main interest of our, our members and some of the main opportunities that exist out there in industry for increasing reliability, driving down costs and driving up production, reducing cost of energy for everyone from rate payers to site owners. So I think some big takeaways for me are, one, there's a lot of collaboration happening. You've got uh, the right people talking. It sounds like data analytics is going to be a big part going forward. And don't get goats. That's right. Fair enough? Okay. <laughs> not for your PV plant. <laughs> not for your PV plant. Okay. Well, Michael, Brandon, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Amy. Thanks a lot. And until next time, we're shaping the future of electricity.